right, let me get you please to open in the Bible to Acts chapter 13. It's page 921 in the Bible, or page 9 in today's program. We're looking at verses, chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. If you would please stand. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, thank you very much for Warren and Christina, and uh, the chance now over 18 years to watch as their ministry has unfolded. Uh, Lord, you are still at work calling people to yourself, just like you do in Acts chapter 13. You are still doing what you did then. And we pray, gracious Heavenly Father, that you would please open our ears and our hearts and give us an, an awareness of your voice, a, a willingness to be open to your voice, a willingness to submit to your voice. Lead us, we pray, Father, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I've called uh, this sermon series Birth of a Church Planting Church. In the first two Sundays, I spent a lot of time talking about how the church in Antioch is kind of the uh, great introductory example, a little bit of a model of a church with a heart for church planting. And it's a, it's a beautiful story. I've always loved the story of Antioch. And uh, so I've, I've sort of been honing in on that aspect of life at Antioch. But I want to back up a little bit and, and, and say that church planting is just a part of life in the church in Antioch. Uh, church planting and an openness to church planting is really just one of several features that we see in the church there in Antioch. And um, as we back up and see more of the picture, I, I think that for me at least the word that uh, comes in is... Uh, a word that you hear sometimes these days, it's called missional. And I want to be careful to distance myself from capital M, missional, whatever that may mean in, in some dictionary somewhere. I'm talking about small m, missional, an adjective describing in general terms what a church is like. And it's pretty clear that the church in Antioch was a missional church. In fact, I want to suggest to you that Put right in the middle of the book of Acts as it is, with more words used to describe what happened and what uh, continued to happen in Antioch over an extended period of time, I think the model of Antioch as a missional church is here specifically to encourage our church and other churches to learn from Antioch what it means to be missional what it looks like to be a church committed to mission. I want to borrow an example for a missional from an Australian uh, missi missi missiologist uh, named Alan Hirsch. 
who uh, describes the missional church in this way. Again, small m. This isn't a part of some big program or something. This is a, an adjective describing a church. He says, a working definition of missional church is that it is a community of God's people that defines itself and organizes its life around its real purpose of being an agent of God's mission to the world. In other words, the church's true and authentic organizing principle is mission. I think it's a pretty good definition. I think it's a good definition of what we see here in Antioch. I think it's a pretty good definition of what I hope and what I pray will become more and more and more an intentional self-conscious awareness here at Metrochrist. Now, not everybody will agree with me about that. I'm not saying that being missional answers every question about church life. But I agree with Alan Hirsch that this idea of being defined by and organized around mission is not only something we see uh, descriptively here in Antioch, but I want to suggest to you that there is a prescriptive sense in which Antioch is being presented as a model to encourage other Christians and other Christian churches, communities, to think of themselves in somewhat the same way. I think Antioch is, is really presented as this kind of uh, diagram of the church that is being launched in the book of Acts and which they will plant and participate in planting uh, that we read about in the rest of the book of Acts. So I'd, I'd like for you to think with me about this idea of a missional church. What does it look like? What does it do? Well, I want to bring to you a few very simple lessons that we can take away from these first four verses in Acts chapter 13. Uh, they're striking, and they describe in such an, such an important way life in the church there that I hope we can take away from here some lessons that might be useful to us as we think about where God is calling our church to go. I want to give you three brief headings. One is diverse. One is open to God's word, and the third is obedient. Uh, I'd like you to have those headings in your mind as, as we look at these four verses this morning. It says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Now, if you remember back in Acts chapter 11 and verses 19 through the end of the chapter, we talked a lot about the church in Antioch, how it was begun, how it's described, some of the things that were involved in its beginning. Well, we're, we're getting more of that. We're seeing a little bit more of what has happened from Acts 11, what kinds of things have happened in the life of the church in Antioch that show the fruit of what happens in Acts 11. Acts 13 is describing the fruit of what has been happening in Acts 11. Well, you remember what happened in Acts 11. The main thing was uh, there was something going on in the church. There was all this activity. It was a little bit of a question to the church in Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas, well known to them, someone they knew to be discerning. They sent Barnabas to go to Antioch. He looked around and he was, it says, glad. He was heartened by what he saw. 
There were things that, that he felt would be helpful to the church. And so he immediately sent for the unlikeliest church planter, the unlikeliest missionary I can think of, a man named Saul, whom he had met earlier in the book of Acts in Jerusalem when Paul, Saul, was trying to connect with the church and they didn't like him. They didn't trust him for pretty good reasons. Uh, Saul, as you remember, had a role to play in the martyrdom of the first martyr, Stephen. And so the church in Jerusalem was understandably uh, suspicious, not quite sure what to make of this man. And it was Barnabas, actually, who worked with Saul, who met with him, who became convinced of his sincerity, the authenticity of his ministry. And it was Barnabas who became Saul's sort of advocate to the church in Jerusalem. Uh, He winds up being welcomed, at least officially. There are still some indications maybe he's not, they're not, 100% 100% sure what to make of him, but he was welcomed in. And, and so Barnabas worked with him for some time. He apparently was very impressed with Saul's heart and his capacity to teach. And so uh, uh, Barnabas uh, gets Saul to come and help lead the church in Antioch. And it actually says that they were there together uh, for some time, uh, teaching and, and preaching and and participating in the life of the development of this little church. It says in Acts uh, chapter 11, verse 26, for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So even in Acts 11, we're already seeing the fruit of what's happening in Antioch as, as what the Lord, the great church planner, has been doing becomes clearer and clearer And uh, there's more and more activity. More and more people join them. Uh, A great many people, it says, uh, were were taught by uh, Saul and by Barnabas. Uh, And this Bible teaching ministry over an unspecified period of time leads us to Acts chapter 13. And what is the fruit of the activity of Barnabas and Saul and more importantly, the Holy Spirit? What is the fruit of of what's been going on in Antioch. Well, Acts chapter 13 tells us there were these people that had begun to be a part of the church. They apparently began to be representative of the kinds of things going on in the church as a result of the teaching and the ongoing work of the Spirit. And I think what we're going to see here is a little bit of a description of what really ought to be a kind of prescription. It's describing something that we, I think, ought to hope for and pray for, teach into as part of our work and our mission here at Metrocrest. What what is that? What is that? It's a, it's a, a remarkable diversity. Look at what it says in uh, Acts 13 verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, and Saul. Now, that's a remarkable list. Uh, It may not strike you and me as particularly remarkable because we have a Sunday school Christianity that we've probably colored pictures of this before. In fact, I I think, kids, there is a children's activity sheet where you get to color a picture of Acts chapter 13, verse 1. 
And we're all so used to the words and the images that there's a sense in which we maybe lose a little bit of the punch. So what is the punch of Acts 13 verse 1? It's this remarkable diversity. Again, may not immediately seem obvious to to you and me that there's diversity because we don't really know very much about the culture. We don't know very much about the language, although some of us are taking Greek. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's an unfolding realization of something going on in Antioch which describes and prescribes what's going to happen in the church. Now bear in mind, in Acts chapters 1 through 10 or so, the focus is almost explicitly and exclusively on people who have one ethnic background. There are a few exceptions, but almost exclusively the focus is on people who are Jewish by religion and Jewish pretty much by ethnicity. There was a a focus on the Jewish people. And that's all through the opening chapters of the book of Acts. Of course, That shouldn't be a surprise because that was the main focus of Jesus' earthly ministry. When we read about him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what we generally see, with a few exceptions, is Jesus engaging with the Jewish people, people who were Jewish by religious tradition and were Jewish by ethnicity. That's the main initial focus of Jesus' earthly ministry. And Acts chapter 1 acknowledges that. Acts chapter 1 acknowledges that that's what Jesus in his flesh mainly worked on in his 33 years of ministry uh, before he was crucified, raised, and ascended into heaven. But in Acts chapter 10, they start turning the focus knob. You know how on a, uh, uh, any kind of image-bearing device, whether it's a TV or a computer, you, you'll have something like a, 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 a focus control. On my laptop, I've got a little bit of control over that kind of thing. And on my camera, I have a lot of control on that kind of thing. You, you can adjust the, the, uh, the focus. And what we begin to see in Acts chapter 10, and again in chapter 11, and then right through the end of the book of Acts, we see this focus that's becoming clearer and clearer. And that focus is this. God is now actively reaching out not only to people with Jewish roots but to the rest of the world. God is open and is showing himself committed to a mission that is bigger than one ethnic group. It's the whole world. And that's what we're beginning to see here in Acts chapter 13. There are a few names thrown out. Barnabas. Well, we know Barnabas. Barnabas was a Jewish man. Uh, He'd been in Jerusalem. But he wasn't from Jerusalem. Barnabas, we read back in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, Barnabas was a native of where? Cyprus. Barnabas was not a native of Jerusalem. He was a native of, of Cyprus. And so the first name in the list Although we're used to seeing his name by now, that, that, that's a little tick mark. Oh, this, this is an unusual church. Here's someone who's not from Jerusalem, 
who's not just sitting on the back row somewhere, but is actually in leadership. Here's Barnabas. Second, we get this man named Simeon, who is called Niger. Now again, um, that may not jump out at us initially. Uh, Simeon is a perfectly acceptable Jewish name, but Niger isn't. Uh, he was called Niger. Niger's not his last name. Uh, Niger is the Latin word for black. And so there is a great deal of scholarly interest in this and a great deal of belief that what we're seeing here is the introduction of an explicitly black man. Not only to life in the church, but leadership in the church. He's a prophet or teacher. Simeon, who was called Niger, a black man, was lead, helping to lead the church in Antioch. There's a speculation that uh, Simeon, who was called Niger, might possibly have been Simon of Cyrene that we read about in the Gospels, the man who carried uh, Jesus' cross. As a matter of fact, I went to a service last night, the Smiths and Cherry Leslie and my wife Leslie and I went to the anniversary celebration for uh, Town North, and we had as the guest preacher the stated clerk of the PCA, a seminary, former seminary president named Brian, uh, Brian Chapel, who preached on this same passage. And unfortunately, I'd already finished my sermon. Otherwise, I'd have, I'd have just kind of adapted because here's a seminary professor who I regard as a great preacher. Well, the consolation was we agree on the significance of this list of names and particularly on Simon uh, called uh, Niger. In fact, Dr. Chapel apparently is one of the ones who shares the belief that this might very possibly have been Simon of Cyrene, the man who carried Jesus' cross. In any event, here, here's, here's this picture of a, of a leader in the church who doesn't fit the mold. It's a little different. I suspect it's part of why, from the beginning, the church in Jerusalem wasn't 100% sure what to make of the church in Antioch. That's why they sent Barnabas there to check it out. They had questions. And we're seeing, we're beginning to see some of the specific reasons. There, were, there was Barnabas, an immigrant from Cyprus. There was Simeon, a possibly, very likely, uh, scholars say, a black man. The list goes on. Lucius of Cyrene. Uh, I mentioned this um, two Sundays ago. I wonder if anybody remembers where Cyrene was. It was in North Africa. In fact, Cyrene was located in what we today call Libya. Uh, there were people who were not of a black ethnicity who lived in that part of Africa, certainly at that stage. So we're not really told whether or not uh, Lucius was black. He might well have been. He might very well have been. But we're not told that as we are about Simeon. But we are told he wasn't someone who fit the mold. Here's yet another character that we read about in the church in Antioch, who was not someone who, who was like everyone else in the room, who, who fit the cookie-cutter image. He was from a, a different part of the world. Maybe the same part of the world as Simeon, we're not sure. 
But here are again, uh, here's yet again another name of someone who is a little different, showing what's going on in Antioch. I think uh, probably the next name would have been more startling to the people in Jerusalem than any of the other names so far. And it's probably a name that means absolutely nothing to us. His name, the next in the list after Barnabas and Simeon and Lucius, is Menaean. Raise your hand if you know anyone named Menaean. It's not a very popular name. You don't bump into many Menaeans. You didn't bump into a lot of Menaeans in the Jewish world in the first century A.D. Menaean was a decidedly Roman name. It was the name of, like Lucius, by the way. Lucius is also a name that would not have been common among Jewish people. Uh, but Menaean was a very, very unusual name. It's a, it's, it means something like comforter. But here's Menaean in this list of leaders in the church. And uh, while the name itself to them would have been a, a curious thing to see in a list of church members, what Luke records about Menaean is genuinely shocking. It says, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, to you and me, like I said, with our Sunday school sensibilities, that may not necessarily cause much of a reaction. But let me tell you, when they heard in Jerusalem that Menaean, the friend of Herod, was a member of the church, well, they'd have been shocked out of their gourds. Do you remember the name Herod? Herod the Tetrarch? He, he and his family dominate the cultural and political backdrop to the entire opening chapters of the New Testament. Herod the Tetrarch was the son of Herod the Great. Uh, Herod the Great, who, who uh, built the second temple, who had massive building projects all over Israel, who was himself Jewish, but not much of a Jew. Ethnically and, and in other ways, culturally, he was, he was actually driven by Hellenistic values. More than anything else, he was driven by ambition and a, a sniveling connection to the ruling government authorities in Rome. And uh, Herod trained his kids and grandkids, and they followed in that great sad story. And Herod the Tetrarch, this man whose friend is part of the church, was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. Remember the story? Herod the Tetrarch was married. He decided he wanted to marry someone else, so he, he abandoned his first wife. He married his second wife, who was a relative. And he got with his second wife, and it became such a scandal that John the Baptist called him on it. John the Baptist said, this is evil. This is not, this is not something that should be happening within the context of, a, of a, uh, a community like the covenant community of Israel. That can't happen. And, and John the Baptist called him on it at great cost. And John got himself imprisoned. And you remember the crazy story, uh, the daughter comes in and is dancing and winds up 
uh, persuading Herod to kill John the Baptist because he really liked her dance. And Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. Now imagine knowing that story and hearing that the membership roster at the Church of Antioch included Herod's longtime friend. This is quite a shocking list. And as shocking as Menaean is, he wasn't the most shocking one on the list. Because it's actually the last name that's the most shocking. Because not only was the Menaean a friend of someone who did evil to the church, there's actually a name here of a man who was known as the great persecutor of the church who helped martyr the very first martyr, who went on to chase Christian men and women around with the intention of killing them. And his name, of course, was Saul. So in the Antiochian membership list, highlighted in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, every single name is some degree of wildly diverse. Diverse is the polite way of describing it. Uh, 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 Probably a a way that more accurately reflects what people said was, what the heck is that all about? Who are they? What on earth is going on in Antioch? Well, you see, what was going on in Antioch was the fruit of an extended period of time of faithful Bible teaching by Paul, Saul, later Paul, and Barnabas, who were teaching the Bible, teaching specifically what Jesus had come to to do and the significance of the cross. And the fruit of that teaching over an extended period of time was this wildly diverse group of people whose leaders included the shocking names we just reviewed. What a crazy situation. And yet, and yet, if you think about it, I mean, isn't that exactly right? I mean, isn't that what we see repeated again and again, not only here in Acts, not only in the ministry of Jesus as he reached out to this wildly diverse group of people in a different way, but wildly diverse nevertheless, tax collectors and, and uh, fishermen and crazy arranged uh, groups of people. That was characteristic of Jesus' ministry. We see that in the book of Acts. We see it right through the rest of the New Testament. And brothers and sisters, you and I sitting here today, we are the fruit of that teaching over millennia to the point that we can hardly see it. It's hard to imagine such a radically diverse shift in the life of the church. But that's exactly what had happened. And not only did it happen, I believe, and I have reason to believe, the Lord wanted it to happen. And it's actually part of the Lord's purpose for the church. It's not an accident. It's not a random thing that just happened. As the church came to see, it's, it's actually 
a manifestation of God's heart to reach the whole world with the gospel of Jesus. And to see people from the whole world respond to that gospel by turning to Jesus. Missional. The church in Antioch was organized around that. Uh, I, I was very keen for Warren to come up and talk a little bit with you all. I love this guy. I've known him a very long time. I've seen his hair turn white. Uh, whiter. A little gray. Gray. Sorry. Mine's white. Yours is slightly gray. Uh, I knew Warren when he had black hair. <laughs> Short, but black. And I've seen the Lord working in Warren's life and in Christina's life and in their family's life. And I've seen what began as a, a love for the Lord grow and be transformed to the point that he's willing to leave his well-paid job as a lawyer in Dallas, Texas to move to the other side of the world to translate the Bible into a language that he had to learn in order to do that job that Christina had to learn. And I see that as this, this missional growth in his life and, and through him and his family the rest of us who know them have been similarly impacted. And now, as you watch life at Metrocrest over the past two years, well, Kathleen, I've lost track of the number of missionaries that Kathleen has arranged to come and be here with us. We're a little church in a suburb of Dallas. We've had missionaries from Ireland, We've had missionaries from uh, Papua New Guinea. We've had missionaries from countries we can't even say out loud because the people who are there are risking their lives. So we can't even say where they are out loud. One after another, lives transformed as people begin to be captured by this idea of the, the wild diversity of God's love. The wild openness. And Antioch got it. They got it. And they're presented to us as a little model of what we should get. And what will shape the way we organize our life together. And the way we do everything together. It will always include this awareness, this focus on the amazing truth that God reached out to us so that we can reach out to others in His name. The, the mission spreads this, this diversity, which is a really poor word, but this idea of the, the wild openness of the Lord. I mentioned going last night with Leslie and... Uh, some others from the church to uh, Town North Presbyterian's anniversary celebration. Uh, I brought a couple of these if anybody wants to flip through them. Uh, it was a beautiful ceremony, uh, absolutely beautiful. Uh, full uh, service, people had come out, including not only today's congregation at Town North, but also people who used to be at Town North. In fact, Cherry Leslie, uh, who is one of our founding members, has been here for 33 years 
plus years who used to play the piano for us every Sunday. I think for years and years and years she played the piano. Well, when I went with Cherry back to town north, every person I can't pass by came up and said, Cherry, it's so wonderful to see you. You see, Cherry, who is a petite, gentle, old school from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, just a petite little lady, Cherry was part of the mission team that planted Metro Crest Presbyterian Church. And she's still here, 33 years later, 33 years later, as is Kathleen Barclay. See, this mission heart, which can show itself in church planting, can show itself in missionary activity, can show itself in all kinds of ways. That spirit was alive at Town North Presbyterian Church, and we're the part of the fruit of that. So the diversity uh, came to include not only people who lived in Richardson, where Town North is located, but they actually had a heart for a little tiny community on the other side of Dallas, called uh, Metrocrest, which is a local name for Carrollton Farmers Branch, Addison, and Capel. Uh, they had a vision for this, and they planted our little church. And so, in behalf of all of you, your session sent yesterday a hand-delivered thank-you note to Town North Presbyterian Church. They began by saying, on behalf of the people of Metrocrest Presbyterian Church, we want to extend our heartfelt congratulations on the anniversary of Town North's 50th year of ministry. While we share your gratitude and praise for God's faithfulness to you, we have special reason to thank Him for His faithfulness through you. It says, on October 8, 1989, your church's associate pastor, Ron Dunton, and a launch team from Town North began meeting publicly at Trinity Mills Village Shopping Center in Carrollton. God granted us growth. New friends from the area joined us. And on June 20th, 1993, Metrocrest Presbyterian Church was admitted to the North Texas Presbytery as a particular church. Today, 33 years later, after Metrocrest was launched with Town North's selfless and generous support, we want to acknowledge our sincere gratitude and love for all that Town North has done in our behalf. Thank you. That was delivered in your behalf to the church that poured itself out for us. Diversity. Let me deal with the other two, and I'm going to try to do this more quickly. But I, I think it's important because there's a progression here. You have this amazingly diverse group of people, the, the fruit of Paul's and Barnabas' teaching. Now verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. Let's pause for a moment. Uh, that's quite a scene. <laughs> they're worshiping the Lord and they're fasting and the Holy Spirit speaks to them. Now take this out of the category of reading about it in the Bible and envision it in the sense you were in the room. I don't exactly know what that means. Was it an audible voice? I guess it could have been. The Lord occasionally speaks to groups of people. Uh, it could have been that. And, and this, the, 
by the way, in those situations where the Lord does that, it's because it's something so unique, so extraordinary, that it requires something like that. It's not something you hear every day. It's not something that's meant to happen repeatedly that we can sit around and expect all the time. We'll be misreading this passage if we try to think that's what it's saying. That's not what it's saying. I don't think. Now, when it says the Holy Spirit said, what I believe happened is the Holy Spirit applied on the hearts of the people who were there worshiping what Saul and Barnabas had been teaching, what they could read about in the Old Testament scriptures, what they saw in the life of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit applied that on their hearts and on their minds in such a way that they heard it. I mean, have you ever heard the Lord in a situation like that where we're opening the Bible, we're reading about something, we're, we're thinking about something, and it just becomes clear as day. Oh, here is an application for me. Here's an application for our church. And the wonderful thing about the church, by the way, is we have one another to check that against. You know, don't, every time something crosses my mind, that's not necessarily the Lord. That's not necessarily the Holy Spirit. But when together we discern, oh, wait a minute, I see an application, and we share it, we discuss it, we talk about it, we pray about it, we discuss it some more. And maybe and it can happen pretty quick. You, you discern the voice of the Lord by the Bible being applied to our hearts and shaping our understanding of something or, or our, our hopes for something, our our dreams about something, it can be that kind of deepening awareness confirmed in the church. It's very important that we have one another. We're not meant to do these things by ourselves. We're meant to do them in communication, in ongoing relationship. We're, we're talking about it. We're thinking about it. But the thing is, they were open to God's Word. It is possible to have the Bible and maybe even to know the Bible, to know the Bible really well and not be open to it. I went to a seminary where I had a professor who was a Greek scholar and knew a great deal about the Bible, a whole lot more than I did about the Old Testament. But I'm very sad to say, years later, I won't name his name, but years later, I never saw any openness to God's Word. He knew a lot about it. He studied it. He poured over it. But often as not, it seemed he poured over it to criticize it, to deny it, to reject it, to refuse to do it. I didn't know him well. I'm, I'm telling you what I saw. But I never saw any openness to God's Word. Well, the church in Antioch, was open to God's word. And in the context of worship and fasting, fasting, by the way, is a Christian discipline. To this day, the, the, the book of church order mentions fasting. Fasting was a way of indicating they were doing something because they wanted to hear from the Lord. There was a, a, a sense in which they had, they had intended to hear from him. Uh, it's, it's an active openness. It's not a passive openness. They were actively open to the Lord. And what I have found 
is when we are truly open to the Lord and to His Word, He often speaks to us. It's not a voice I hear. Don't worry. I'm not, not making any claims about hearing voices. But He speaks to us. And that's what He does here in Antioch. In the context of worship, in the context of community fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke to them. And it was something very specific. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. A very specific application. Together, this church in Antioch, open to his word, received this message. Something very specific. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. They were radically open to God's word. Brothers and sisters, I want to be open to God's word. Don't you? I want Metrocast to be characterized by openness to God's word. Lord, you tell me what to do. And Father, I will try to do it. I want Metrocast to be characterized that way. Don't you? Isn't that what we want? Well, let me tell you this. When you have that radical openness, you have young couples who pack up their bags and go to the mission field. And Metrocrest is the beneficiary of generations of missionaries from among us who pack up their bags, leave good jobs, go to the other side of the world to do God's work. It's not always as specific as it is here in Acts 13 verse 2, but sometimes it is. Sometimes it's pretty specific. It's always subject to checking it out with the community. It's always subject to our listening together. But sometimes the Lord gives us something very specific to do. And that's what we're shown here happening in Antioch. They, they receive this word. The third thing about this church in Antioch, and I'm wrapping up, don't worry. Uh, the third point is they were obedient. This missional church, they were diverse, they're the fruit of this work of God, they were, they were open to God's word, and finally they were obedient. Look what happens. It says, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Verse 3 is an amazing understatement. After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off in obedience to the voice of the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about that act of obedience. You know, every once in a while, we'll talk about sending someone to the mission field, and it's very often someone really young, maybe someone on the edge of the church, maybe they're just starting out in life and ministry, and they're kind of on the edge of things a little bit. Uh, sometimes that's the kind of person the Lord calls to mission life, and praise God, let's, obe let's be obedient. But the striking thing about this initial example, this, this kind of model, is that the people the Holy Spirit told them to send was not someone on the margins. It was not someone on the edges. It was the best they had. It, it was, it was the, the couple, the two men, who had taught them about the amazing work of the Holy Spirit, the amazing work of God, 
the one who'd introduced these things to them, who'd helped them to mature, to grow into the incredibly diverse, incredibly open church that they were, the Holy Spirit actually told them, I want you to send those two. What? Or anybody but them. We can send anybody but them. We can't send them. They sent them. And I'm not overstating when I say that for us at Trinity Episcopal Church, when God called Warren and Christina Dodson to go into the mission field, Warren was on our what was we called at that time the vestry, which was roughly equivalent in some ways to a session. Uh, he helped lead our mission team. He and Christina helped lead our mission team. Uh, they were big givers. They were people who took their ministry serious. I think they served on every committee you could serve on. God said, send Warren and Christina to the mission field. I got to tell you, as a pastor, uh, that was, that was a, a, quite a demanding thing to say. It was not easy for us to pray and lay hands on this couple and send them off into the mission field. I can only imagine how hard it must have been for the church in Antioch to pray and fast and seek the Lord and then to lay their hands on them, on Barnabas and Saul, who had led them to be the church they had become. And last three words, sent them off. It's a beautiful picture, I think of an obedient church. It wasn't easy. There were a million and one reasons not to do that. But they did. They were obedient. And the good news is, as we read about in the rest of the book of Acts, the Lord had plans for Saul and for Barnabas. He had plans There is no way Town North could have imagined that 33 years later, our church would still be here, still be preaching the gospel, and that we would be writing them 33 years later to say thank you. Thank you for being obedient. And it was also a a really good thing for Antioch. Uh, We're going to actually talk next Sunday about the rest of the story about Antioch. Uh, The story of Antioch does not end with chapter 13. Uh, God had a lot more to do. It was a good thing for Antioch. And we'll see a little bit more about that. I want to close uh, today uh, just by asking you to let's pray together. We're going to have a prayer meeting at 1230. That'd be a great time to pray. Let's pray together for the Lord to make himself plain to us, for the Holy Spirit to speak to us, to help us to know. There's so many different ways we can do things. There are all kinds of approaches. And those are absolutely right to think about, to talk about, to discuss, to debate, to disagree about. Absolutely, that's, that's, that's of course, what we should expect in this fallen world. We're going to have some trouble sometimes. Hearing as the Lord speaks to us. But I want to 
beg God to make us like that. To make us a church obedient, open, ready to do whatever our amazing, gracious, loving God calls us to do.